little surprised to see you uh, among the, the guest list at the show. This doesn't seem quite quite like your, your speed, generally. Well, I don't know if you're aware, but I'm now in the graphic novel yeah. business. So, yeah. uh, and, um, but in addition to which, uh, it's, um, uh, Harvey, it's the Harvey Awards, Harvey Kurtzman. Yeah. I knew Harvey before he was Harvey Kurtzman, so you know, he used to come up to Will Eisner's office when I was Eisner's assistant. We'd, yeah. we'd hang out together. You know, years when he was still doing Hey Look, and the years before Mad Magazine. So uh, uh, Harvey and I went way back, and I was a fan of his and a friend of his for many, many years. It, it's interesting, uh, you know, to, to see who become the really sort of celebrated figures in the field, you know, I mean, Eisner I'm and... I'm having trouble here. Oh, sorry, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm pretty deaf. Yeah. Uh, I was just saying, you know, it's, you, you mentioned um, Kurtzman and, and Eisner in one breath, Yeah. and it's it, it's interesting to see who ends up kind of becoming the, the celebrated figures over the years. I mean, those are... Well, and that, that uh, Will is being honored, you know, at, yeah. at, you know, at this Harvey celebration, Yeah. He's, it seems like he's always being honored. You know? So it's uh, well. I mean, the, the uh, when I worked for Eisner, which was 1947, mm-hmm. 1948 or so, uh, when he resumed doing the Spirit after the war, and uh, and it was in terms of the graphics and often in terms of the story, the best of the years of the Spirit. Uh, it was a magnet for up and coming cartoonists. They wanted to. I mean, it was with more exciting, more original, more mm. unique stuff was going on than anywhere else in the business. Uh, and um, so they would all gravitate to Eisner's, and I worked for Eisner's, so I met them all and became friends with some of them, uh, and uh, Harvey notably among them. There, there, there seemed to be, uh, it, uh, not easy, but it, you know, it, se- it seemed to be pretty within reach in, in those days to um, start working with a big, a big name artist and then kind of work your way up through the book. I mean, pretty. It seemed, sounds like relatively quickly you were doing the front page, uh, the front of the book story. Um, I didn't hear that. Oh, uh, j- just uh, you know, it, se- it, it, se- it seemed like you know back then it, it was a, a pretty clear path to um, kind of apprentice or, or intern with yeah. somebody, and then you, you slowly started taking over a lot of the uh, a lot of the writing for the book. Well, it. it, it um it, it was less a progression than finding something that I was capable of doing because the artwork, mm. uh, uh, which I had great ambitions about, turned out I was inept at uh, and uh, could not develop that style, could not use a brush mm. the way everybody else seemed to be able to. Uh, and um, uh, any time I was any near any near any artwork, I screwed it up. Uh, Eisner was endlessly patient, so. Uh, but at the same time, I noticed that he was paying less and less attention to story mm. because he had um, uh, he was spreading out and he was uh, doing magazine stuff and starting magazines and yeah. he had uh, a fishing magazine called American Angler. What he, exactly what he knew about fishing, I don't know. And uh, and he had some other things and he did uh, and he was starting to do stuff for the military, you know, you know and, and uh, extending his Joe mm-hmm. Dope cartoons and and uh, a PS a public service magazine you know uh, uh, so th- uh, while the artwork of the spirit remained great th- 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 will was kind of batting out the stories he yeah. didn't have time and I began writing them and uh, he liked what I wrote and I wrote most of them for the, the two years for many years I worked for him, and would lay them out and we would go over them and edit them and it was a very collegial and wonderful experience, and um, uh, and really launched me in the direction I later moved, which was toward narrative cartoons. Was there any resentment at the time that your name wasn't on it at all? That it was really just well, a there, there, I was, you, you know, cartoons had ghosts; they yeah. had assistants. It's, uh, uh, and I was no more than an apprentice. I mean, I I would have been shocked if um, my name was on it. My name shouldn't have been on mm-hmm. it, but. Uh, when I asked him for a raise and he said I wasn't worth it to him, he gave me the back page. And then I started this kid strip called Clifford with my name on it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Eisner was very generous about it. He was very, he thought it was terrific. Uh, and when I look over the old ones, I'm less certain about that. But it was a, 
uh, you can see toward the closing days uh, before I got drafted in 1951, I was moving in the direction that I was later going to start uh, developing in the Village Voice, mm-hmm. but um, uh, it really was the last of my active involvement in the kind of comics yeah. that were reflected in comic books or comic strips. From that point on, post-draft, um, uh, I moved in a whole new direction that uh, uh, was new to me and almost everybody else. You, you considered yourself uh, an artist before a storyteller when you first started? No, I considered myself a cartoonist, which mm. is words and pictures. Yeah. No, and and the reason I got into the comics was because of words and you know when I uh, uh, the first strip I fell in love with, um, or the first few st- were um, Al Cap's Little Abner, yeah. which was wonderfully written, mm-hmm. and his even better strip I thought Abby and Slats, which mm-hmm. he wrote, but a great artist named Raymond Van Buren drew. But these 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 are great examples of the words and pictures to tell a yeah. story, and uh, and Milton Kniff's Terry and the Pirates, which was the most extraordinary and uh, perfect use of words and pictures uh, in the form. I mean, he and Eisner were the two best at doing this. So, And I loved the, the whole idea of telling a story in pictures. And um, uh, and that's what I've been doing my entire life, even when I went into theater. So, so, the, so there, were, But there was a little bit of frustration around not being able to quite draw within that style? At- oh, not... not Less frustration and absolute misery. <laughs> but you know, then I decided, well, I can't do this, so I got to do something else. Yeah. So, you know, I can't go on beating myself over the head to something I don't have a skill for. And oddly enough, you know, uh, uh, 60, 70 years later, uh, I, I developed the skill. And when I when at the age of eighty, I wrote <laughs> "Kill My Mother" and and thought somebody else should draw it because I can't. The publisher insisted I try. And in the intervening years, somehow I had learned. <laughs> and and what you what you learned early on, especially you know as you were moving toward the Village Voice strip, was how to draw in your own style. What what your own visual style was like. Oh, it it, it took a long time. If you see the early Voice mm. stuff, it's about two months or so before I evolve at something uh, that could be called a Pfeiffer style. I you know the the, the um, the writing was all in place from the very beginning. I mean, it kept developing, kept yeah. getting better. But uh, it was essentially what it was. Uh, the art, I kept experimenting with. I could not find a style that visually worked with the text for mm. a long time. And finally, it just came about. You just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And suddenly, one day, you know what works. How, how would you define the Pfeiffer style? I just <laughs> <laughs> mostly through desperation and self-loathing. Uh, if you were describing it to somebody, though, the actual like visual language, it's <laughs> well, you know, I mean, they were all, uh, when I was doing strips. When I was you know, when my ambition was comics, the people I looked to for guidance were Eisner and Kniff. Yeah. Um, when I switched to um, satire and um, and adult themes and um, politics in narrative form the the, the models I was looking at was Saul Steinberg Mm -hmm. and William Steig's later stuff Mm -hmm. and uh, Andre Francois and uh, Robert Osborne you know there were were a whole bunch of artists experimenting in in, in, um, editorial forms all very different styles, and I picked up from all of them. Yeah. I, you know, I liked all of them, and I kind of drew like one one day and the other the next day until it kind of gave me a style of my own. W- what is it about that style, though, that works specifically with the with the satire, with the strips versus it, the spirit? It's, it's hard to be specific, but I knew very well that um, when I wanted to do a satiric strip, uh, using a newspaper comic style, even as satirical as say as Walt Kelly, mm-hmm. it was not going to work. That yeah. was not appropriate for it. Yeah. Uh, and it was I still to, a little more sort of polished toward the well, Eisner end. it had to be um, more linear, mm. more simple. Mm. Uh, what I understood from the beginning is because the text I was using in the Pfeiffer strip 
which originally was called 666 in the voice, in the village voice. The, uh, uh, the, the text was so dense and complicated, and the story um, I was telling in six panels or eight panels um, was somewhat demanding of the reader, so the visual style could not be demanding as well. Mm. Otherwise, nobody would bother. And uh, in, in addition, it would uh, I could not have the art deflect from the dialogue. The copy had to uh, be the main thing, and it mm. had to seduce the reader from panel to panel. And part of that seduction was to uh, arrive at a graphic style that was as simple yeah. and as inviting as possible and as minimalist as possible. Is it is it actually simple? Is it actually... I mean, no, of course. No, it's, it's never <laughs> simple. I mean, for me, the model from the beginning, as he always has been, was Fred Astaire, who looks simple sure. and looks easy. Sure. And spends months rehearsing to make that look easy. Yeah. And so I was you know, uh, using that as a model. You take something... Uh, you get something that's very difficult and complicated, and you find the simplest way of presenting it mm. so that it doesn't look like you're doing anything at all. How long would it take you to draw, you know, six, seven, eight panel strip? Oh, I would, you know, it would take several hours or maybe a day. Wow. Uh, it might take another day uh, to write it. Yeah. The day before, two days before. I found, as far as the voice strips went, that if I could have two or three days after writing it, before drawing it, it would help because... I'd do something that I thought was a work of genius one day. I'd look at it the next day, and it was a piece of crap. Uh, so you, you, if, if you go, and anybody who writes knows that. Yeah. You, you, uh, so if you have to write it and turn it out at the same time and get it out that day, if you're lucky, it'll be okay. Yeah. But more times than not, there's, when you see it in print, there's a lot more you wanted to do with it that you didn't have the time to do. So I tried um, as best I could to... Um, get the writing done, the script done, a day or two before I drew it and sent it in. And because it was a weekly strip, that wasn't always difficult. I've I've gotten to a point in my life as a writer where I, I need those deadlines, where you know I need something approaching in order to get it yeah. out. I mean, if anything, I feel like deadlines are kind of helping me at this point. I get a little precious and spend a little bit too much time on something. And, and Oh, I agree. But you know. then it's nice to take a second look at it and sure. do some editing. Yeah. Are, are you... So, so you know, when you when you get really down, when you, when you get down to it, when you look at a strip like that, and you know, all, all things considered, there's not that many lines. So w- what what takes the time? Is it the is it the redrawing? Are you are you drawing the same panel over and over again? Uh, again, it's all about storytelling. Yeah. Is the is the expression right? Is the mood right? Mm-hmm. Is the body language right? Uh, is it uh, often is not uh, the way I drew. Uh, the first shot at it would be better than second or third attempts because it had a, a freshness to it. Yeah. If I kept working it over, it got stale. So uh, uh, at a certain point when they developed uh, uh, photocopies, I gave up penciling entirely and mm-hmm. I just started drawing in ink on individual sheets of paper. And When I had six or eight panels that told the story, mm-hmm. I cut them out and pasted them in. I, I, there's a little bit of irony there of, the, of you finally like hitting the spontaneity of the freshness on yeah. the third or fourth try, right? Of of, of keeping it, lo- making it look like something you've just drawn. But well, it, you know, it, it's it's all illusion. Yeah, I mean, you, that, that the whole form, and I've said this often about all the forms I work in, uh, particularly theater, it's sleight of hand. You know, yeah. that that uh, uh, you, you take the reader or the audience down one path and 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 to get them to think you're doing one thing. And you're really doing something else, and they don't find that out until the end. Is is it easier to, to work on something shorter? I mean, I, you know, you've done these plays, you've done books, you've, you 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 released the graphic novel this year. Um, do you prefer working short form? No, I love the long form. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm having more fun doing these graphic novels. Um, not today, actually. I'm struggling over the third book. Uh, the, the first book came out, as you know. The yeah. second book uh, is coming out next June or July, and it's been turned in about a, in, in a, a month ago. And now I have to wrap up the two books and, 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 and put all the loose ends together and tell a whole new story. And I'm having a hell of a difficult yeah. time doing that. So it's uh, And at the same time, it's great fun to try to figure it out, this puzzle. 
and the complicated stories. Once I started working in the Long Falls, and it began really with my first play, Little Murders, mm-hmm. uh, it's what I preferred. I, getting uh, uh, As much as I love doing six or eight panels, yeah. you can't develop a relationship, you can't develop complicated things. You know, it's got to be uh, a quick shot in and out. And I love that form, and, and often it's... Quite satisfying to get certain things said, particularly political or uh, relationship statements. But in terms of storytelling, and I love storytelling, there's nothing like uh, the longer form, and um, and I adore it. How long did the voice strip run, all told? I ran it. It was uh, forty years. Forty years. Yeah, the, the, and then forty-two years in syndication. W- was it? You know, was it was it about just doing a lot of different things at once? Was it about you know kind of keeping your 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 brain interested, or was it was it just nice having that steady paycheck? What what kept you doing that strip for so long? Well, what stopped it was they fired me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, 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 that's the answer to the other question. That's one way of getting out of the business. And uh, but you could have fired yourself a lot earlier. Well, I, you know, I, I I had I actually had looked for other papers to get into. Yeah. But nobody wanted me but the Voice. Nobody would do that kind hmm. of strip except for the Village Voice, and, uh, and pay me what they were paying me, which was considerable after mm. all of those years, after 40 years. So the combination of needing the paycheck, yeah. I had at the time two children, a third on the way, and, um, and living in the most expensive city in, in, in the Western world. Uh, and uh, I mean, when I started at The Voice in, the, in late 50s and 60s, and started a syndication. In the 60s, I was making $40,000 a year at my work, hmm. and it was enough to buy me an apartment uh, on Riverside Drive, buy me a house <laughs> on Martha's Vineyard, <laughs> and take me to Europe a couple of times a year and raise a f- start a family. I think that's uh, minimum wage that, now. That, uh, <laughs> by the time I got fired by The Voice, $40,000 was yeah. petty. petty <laughs> yeah. I, 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 that, that's, what you, that's what the cost to... Um, uh, find a room for your car yeah. and, a, and, a, yeah. and a lot. <laughs> did, did it start? <clears throat> did it ever start slipping into the background? Did, did you ever kind of lo- lose focus on it as you were focused on all these other projects? Um, I was always a creature of what I was obsessed with at that moment, yeah. and uh, uh, I was very interested in theater at the time. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if I got on a play, that became everything to me and, yeah. I, and, I, and I stopped that to for a day and a half to turn out the week strip but my mind was always on the play mm-hmm. and um, and if it was a book it was the same thing you know to, to back and forth when I got into kids books that became a new obsession I love you know because I had, was a new father at the time and, yeah. it, uh, and I loved telling these kids stories both in terms of novels like the first of the book uh, the Man in the Ceiling, about a boy cartoonist, mm-hmm. uh, which was a novel. It, and that came out in 1994. Is uh, I was just out in California for tryouts of a musical version of it for mm-hmm. Broadway, uh, which we'll be doing in the next year or two on Broadway. And uh, it met with great success. So it's, uh, that's very exciting. Do, do the other projects start to suffer though when you're working on something new? No, I, I, I've always done balancing acts, and yeah. I don't let anything suffer. It's yeah. not that because uh, if I have to do it badly, I don't do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so curious how you how you manage your time, how you're able to do all of these different things. Sloppily, but it's, okay. it's, it's all obsession. Also. Um, if you love the exercise and love the work, yeah. and uh, while it is a job, it's really uh, a plaything. It's a form of play, mm-hmm. and my hobby—I don't, you know—I don't do sports. Yeah, I have no hobbies. I have no skills outside of the one thing I do have. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I have no sense of direction. I can't yeah. find my way around the block. What I can do is write and draw cartoons and plays and other stuff, and, and uh, so it's. Um, uh, I glory in it, you know, it, it, and and one of the great glories is to return, in terms of the graphic novel, to the adventure strip form, which I which was my first love. Yeah. Uh, along with Kniff, it was uh, 
Roy Crane and, and Wash Tubbs and Captain Easy, mm-hmm. you know, those early adventure strips. A wonderful cartoonist named George Storm, who nobody remembers. I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry to say Patrick. I don't. Well, these, you know, these, <laughs> I'm talking about the 30s and sure. 40s, slightly before your time. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, and, and, but the, these are guys I remember today as clearly as I did yeah. when I first saw them. Was, was, was doing so many distinct things was that by design you know was was doing anime like animation was doing the plays what did you just want to try your hand at, at as many things as possible no it, it, it was a way of making a living I, yeah. I i was never particularly interested in animation and i i i don't watch animation i hmm. i uh, i've never seen uh i never watched the simpsons which is i'm sure is very good mm-hmm. and, South Park, I've tried to... Oh, South... What is it? South Park, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> I try to watch. I don't get it at all. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem funny or interesting huh. to me. I, I, animation bores me. Yeah. Uh, it's... Um, that's surprising. Uh, I, you know, the dramatic form I like because people act. Mm. And when they act, you see them uh, reacting to each other. Cartoon characters can't really react. They, they mm. overreact. Sure. And I like nuance. I like subtlety. I like body language. I like all those things that real actors can do and cartoons can't do. It's funny, though. It feels like sort of a happy in-between, you know, well, the in stage the, in, and in, in the graphic novel, I've learned a way of defining that body language graphically so that there's somewhat of the illusion of a film or a play. Hmm. But, that, that, I, but that's because I've been a playwright for years, and I, and I know, uh, having seen the work stage and worked with some brilliant directors... Hmm. Uh, What's expected and what to shoot for? I don't. When, when when I think of live theater, I don't tend to think of subtlety. I do tend to think of sort of large reactions because you're acting for, an, uh, uh, you know, in, in a lot of if it's Broadway, you're acting for a large audience. Well, because you've seen lousy plays, <laughs> okay, or well, lousy productions. Yeah. You know, there there are uh, uh, in good theater, mm. it's amazing what they can get out of very little. Uh, if you <clears throat> see Hamilton, which is this huge. Mm-hmm hit on Broadway and, and, the, and, the, and the producer of Hamilton is directing my uh, play The Man in the Ceiling. Um, uh, it's full of subtlety and nuance mm. and remarkable stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, how, 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 do you, how do you translate subtlety into, in, in, into comics? How do, you not, how do you not overreact with your characters? Well, um, it's uh, the way it's always been done. Uh, God knows I didn't start this, but if you watch uh, Kniff's work when mm. he was telling a story, he mm-hmm. had a major character of his, Raven Sherman, get killed uh, by being thrown off a, ch- a truck in China. And he has a Sunday strip of uh, uh, the two heroes who pick her up and bury her and then walk down the mountain cliff and then look back and they talk and then they can't have anything to say and then they sit and then they fall asleep. And that's all done in 12 panels, and it feels like 200 pages. And uh, very little is said, and only in um, the shots, long shot, medium shot, angles, uh, uh, the color, uh, the way color is used hmm. at play with the figures. Uh, it, 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 the, the artist, in this case, Kniff, is directing the reader's eye hmm. in how fast or slow that reader looks at the at the work and uh, uh, and if you're in a fist fight you move, the eye moves fast and if it's this the eye moves very slowly he goes over it it's wonderful when you, you, can, you when simply 12 lousy panels on a page in color um, can take 8 to 10 minutes to yeah. go over yeah. and that's because that's what the cartoonist decided he wanted to do with you and if he's really good at it no one was better <laughs> at this craft than Kniff he can, he can he can he can manipulate the reader. You, you, in a sense, though, you're working with uh, fewer tools at your disposal. If if you're working with fewer lines, if there's not color, it's it, it's that much more difficult to portray these things. No, no, it's it's uh, it's just a different set of challenges. Uh, it's uh, if you're working in the form, you get in, you try to get inside the form, and in a sense, it's. Um, did you ever see the play Waiting for Godot? Do you know yeah, sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, when you, when, if you read Waiting for Godot, I remember the first time I read it, 
I thought, oh my God, it's a comic strip. I mean, that, mm. that, that, that the, the dial, like, he's yeah. coming. No, he's not coming. He'll yeah. be here. Yes, he'll be there. It read like E.C. Cigars Papa. <laughs> you know? and, and, uh, uh, and yet it was so dense and had so much meaning. Well, nobody seems to be saying anything. And that's the trick. Beckett learned how to, knew how to do it. And I studied Beckett to see yeah. if I could you know, to try to figure out how he did it so I could convert it to a comic strip. Hmm. And then, and then, convert it back. And then convert it back. Did, how much did working on this regular strip inform your your early plays? Oh, I think everything did. You know, every, everything informed everything. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't just the comic strips. It was uh, you know going to theater, going to movies. I, uh, uh, the films I was in love with from the time I was a little kid. Uh, I always loved film. I loved old time radio, mm. which was a dramatized film. Yeah. Uh, all these, to- you know, while I was listening to the radio, when I was listening to uh, the Adventures of Superman and Jack Armstrong and and, and all of these shows, or, or or the radio comedies, Jack mm-hmm. Benny, uh, I was learning my craft. I, you know, I learned about comic timing from Jack Benny and <laughs> Fred Allen. I learned how to, you know, and I learned how to about pauses and silences from yeah. Jim and Terry and the Pirates. Interesting, because because you know the, those I, I, when I think of those. Or those radio plays and 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 movies, you know, people speaking in mid mid Atlantic accents. I, I I think of kind of overly broad. But when when you're starting to work on on the strip, I, I mean, that's really kind of the time period where films are making that transition. Yeah. That's when Brando is coming around and things are becoming a lot more realistic. But there were also very subtle radio shows. I mm. mean, the the, the the kids' afternoon shows were broad. They had to be. Yeah. But there were evening shows, dramatic shows. A great one called Suspense. A half hour of th- a thriller each week, that was directed like a, written and directed like a half hour movie uh, with music music cues that sounded like a movie, and it was amazingly uh, visual, coming through the radio, mm-hmm. it was just amazingly dramatic, and I learned scads from that about dramatizing. So Eisner goes off and, and is working on some of the, the wartime stuff some of I know I, know, I think he ha- did some tennis drawings at some point and um, he, he does obviously eventually return back to comics uh, really in a lot of ways helps pioneer the, the graphic novel as a form w- was it clear in those early days that he was really onto something that that was the start of something oh, well, when he came back on the spirit which was uh, uh I guess it was 1946 he hmm. It seems like a long time, but I think it was 46. Um, he was drawing in a different, you know, much more realistic. Yeah. And, more, and, and the people he had helping him out, uh, penciling and inking, were more realistic. It was a more realistic style. And the dramatization got much more cinematic and much more... Um, and, and the storytelling got better. I mean, he just had honed... All of these skills to a sharper edge in his absence, and, and brought to it uh, uh, in finished forms on those early spirit pages in '46, '47, uh, a, a completeness that he never had before, that he hinted at but never had before. And to get in on that at an early age, you know, I was in my 20, early twenties, was just thrilling, marvelous, and I it, it was uh, a, a wonderful apprenticeship. But but much, but much later he starts working on Contract with God. Some of yes. these uh, these early graphic novels, uh, um, you know, was w- w- was that clear that that was sort of an entirely new way of, of telling a story? Well, I, you know, by that time we had more or less lost contact. Yeah. We'd go, go gone off in different directions, and I don't think I was aware of Contract with God mm. until it was out a year or so. Um, it, you know, you know, I, I was much. I was simply involved in my own yeah. stuff by then, and so I, you know, I was delighted that he had returned to comics, and, and and I thought the work was brilliant. But it wasn't anything that I was paying particular mm. attention to, except that I was very pleased for him. But, but at what point do you start noticing these longer form comics, and at what point does it occur to you that that's something you want to try your hand at? Well, uh, it, it began uh, at the time Will was doing Contract with God. Uh, I was at work on. A novel in cartoons. I didn't call it a graphic novel, um, and it was done in a more or less traditional Pfeiffer style mm-hmm. at the time, called Tantrum. The 
because I was oh, about yeah, to be 50 yeah, years old. Yeah. And I decided that I wanted to do a book in cartoons, a novel in cartoons mm-hmm. by the time I was 50. <laughs> so I came up with this idea and developed it, and I loved it, and it was successful. And I thought I would be doing a lot of these, and it was the last one I did. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I never had another idea. And, uh, and I was you know, in the business and out of the business with one book. And it was essentially old age that got me back into it. Hmm. You know, that that uh, in my fifties, I had other things I wanted to do. I wanted to write for theater, and I wanted to uh, do screenplays. But when I was eighty, and couldn't move, move around hmm. that well anymore, and couldn't live in the city anymore because uh, I couldn't hear and I couldn't walk, and I could uh, my limitations yeah. took me out of the forms that I had been working in. It's hard to write for theater if you can't hear. Your, your hmm. actors in a rehearsal. Yeah. And um, so I was living out in Long Island and fiddling around with stuff to do. And I started combining everything into the comic book. You know, to to, to, to do a graphic novel that that um, involved me as a playwright, as a screenwriter, and uh, and uh, eventually as a graphic artist, which was hmm. not the plan, but it turned out that way. So it takes everything I ever learned in yeah. my life and puts it into one form. And instead of moving around with actors, I can sit on my drawing board and you know, boss them around. That's interesting. It, you know, I, I, I had read read the book some time ago, and, and, it, and it doesn't even occur to me until you're saying this now that, it, that this is kind of a culmination of your, life, your life's yes. work. But none of it was planned. It just yeah. happened that way. And it happened because... You know, it happened the reason I did the Pfeiffer strip in The Voice was out of my limitation because I hmm. couldn't do an adventure strip. I couldn't yeah. work in the form that Eisner and Kniff did. I was no good at it. And the reason I ended up writing graphic novels is, again, the limitations of age. I was forced hmm. to think in new ways because I couldn't do the old thing, what I had been doing. But you, 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 don't, you never get frustrated to the point of just giving up and, <laughs> and, and, and walking away from a project? Oh, you, you know, you always get frustrated. Yeah. I've, I've been doing this forever. And um, and I found out that if it's essentially a good idea, and if what I'm doing at the moment is rotten, hmm. uh, if I just give it time, it'll come around. Yeah. It'll guide me in the right direction. It has nothing to do with here. Yeah. It has also it's got something to do with the gut and giving it time and letting it mature letting letting it letting it come out when it wants to it will surface I just can't push it and I can't bully it uh, all of those things are self defeating yeah so if I just learn to be patient and do other things and fool around or suck my thumb or just watch television sooner or later it'll happen and uh, it'll it'll turn out and it'll be good it might take. 35 years in between <laughs> one project <laughs> no, and the it, next. It may t- you know, one play I did that way took six years to write. Yeah. And uh, usually I had a first draft of a play in about two months. So, uh, but I learned that's if you, you, that I can't boss it around. It's the boss. It, whatever it is, the process. Uh, and, and I'm basically the, the stenographer or I'm the medium that, that delivers. Channeling the, the muse. <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, in a sense, I have very little to do with, do with it. It decides when to use me hmm. and when not to. Does it, re- it, it? It really feels like that. It really, yeah. yeah. Yes, and I learned to trust it. Yeah. So that trusting it, uh, however often I fail, I don't get frustrated because I know that uh, failure is part of the process. Fucking up is part of what. Yeah. Fucking up is what you need to be good. Do you have any just completely dry creative spells? Any point when oh, you're not producing the, all, anything? All the time. And then I just leave it alone and read and yeah. watch. And, 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 I mean, just... Does, but does anyone jump out? You know, what was your longest period without actually creating anything? Oh, it might have been a year or so. Wow. I mean, something, something comes along. Yeah. I mean, first of all, when I was doing the strip, even when I was dry creatively, I had to turn out a strip every week. Yeah. You know, and, but there was stuff out there that I could comment on. I mean, essentially, I had the Cold War for many years as a subject matter. I had Vietnam, mm. 
uh, as a subject matter. I have civil rights. I had all that stuff that everybody else was afraid to touch. Yeah. And I could jump into it. And um, that never really stops, though. There's always some sort of social unrest out there to talk about. Well, y- yes, but it does stop for me because now it has. Mm. Because uh, what I see is instead of going forward, we uh, you see it in Donald Trump. We're going back yeah. to trying to be a country that we were before the New Deal, mm-hmm. before the 1930s. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that the right-wing Republicans basically idealize America... Uh, uh, when it was only white, uh, when uh, when they had a rural fantasy, mm-hmm. even when the rural thing had begun to fail, when everything was fantasized and idealized as individualism, uh, even you know, and um, when there were no unions. I mean, the reason that people got a living wage in the first place was because unions under the New Deal began to began to have power. Without that, people would still be making 25 cents an hour. Mm. And, and uh, so all of those things that made us strong and made us a middle class, that gave us the first middle class in the history of the world, uh, have got started to backtrack. And that yeah. middle class is now disappearing. Unions are disappearing uh, in terms of their power. And, um, and all of the things that made this society work is having a hard time surviving. Uh, I'm not willing to go back into that struggle and fight it all over again. I did that one time. So I'm leaving that to others, and I'm just... <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that, that the third book in, in of the Kill My Mother series uh, obliquely touches on all of mm. this, but um, uh, how obliquely and how directly and how, how successfully uh, depends on what happens in the next three months of writing, and I'm not in charge of that. When, when you do something for 40 years, when you're doing it weekly for 40 years, I've got to imagine you know, you're know you sit, sitting down and you're watching CNN or you know, you, you see Donald Trump on television, and, and you know, the idea for one of these pops in your head. You must go back to that mode every once in a while. No, I don't. Really? You, you don't. Can, you've turned it off? No, I, I, it's not that I turned it off, but you know... Uh, you know, how can I do better than John Stewart sure. on a daily show? Sure. I mean, and there's so many good people around me. Yeah. When I started doing my stuff, nobody mm. was doing this. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, you know, I was all alone, and then Mike Nicholson and Elaine May came along, yeah. and then Lenny Bruce came along, and, you know, and, and it was great to have allies and colleagues, but there still were not a lot of people. Now there are quite a few, and they're brilliant. Yeah. And... Uh, and there's no reason for me to compete with them, and I don't doubt if I could. Do, do you do you feel that you're given the, the the credit that you deserve for being in there early, for being a pioneer of that that sort of satire? I've gotten plenty of credit. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing all right. <laughs> I've gotten plenty of credit. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, I have no quarrels with. Yeah. The <laughs> do, do you? You know, and I've been thinking about this. Uh, with respect to the biography that came out earlier this year, um, are you somebody who looks back a lot? Do you do you do you reflect on your work a lot? Only when these books come out. I mean, when <laughs> Out of Line yeah. came out, I was thrilled and I couldn't leave it alone. I kept going mm. and pouring over it, and um, you know, only when these uh, lively ongoing obituaries come out that don't, you know, then I get obsessed with my past yeah but mostly I'm thinking about what I'm doing next yeah um, it's you know it's it seems like a big undertaking to do to do not just one graphic novel but but I, you saw it from being as being a, a trilogy from from the beginning but you know it's it's uh, yes it's it's big if you think of it in toto yeah um but if you're just doing it and it's work you love, it's a day's work. That's all. Yeah. And it makes certain demands, but it's demands that they've always been made. Are the characters real? Uh, am I writing, um, giving too much away? Uh, how do I be? How do I get to be less direct? How do I, what do, uh, and without being, becoming obscure, you know, how do I tell the story better? Who's the focus on, on this page? Uh, is it on the person speaking the dialogue, or is it on the person reacting and listening? Uh, that, those are the problems that a director in a play or in a movie has, mm-hmm. and, and 
I'm the director of this movie, of this comic strip. It's the, 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 always the, the best and the worst part about being a cartoonist, uh, being somebody who does every aspect of the process, yes, is you can't, and, and, you can't blame it on anybody else. And it's more fun. I mean, you know, th- think of the power you have. Yeah. It's, it's the, 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 I'm, I cast all the actors, and I am all the actors yeah. at the same time. But I, if it's I, bad, know, you're, the only one who, you're the only one who can, who know, can take the blame. Uh, I draw a character who I you know, haven't uh, fully personalized yet. Yeah. I look at him and I say, thank you very much, next, and the next one comes. Yeah. It's like actors auditioning yeah. until the right one comes along and I say, you got the job. And, 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 uh, it's enormous fun. It's As we said earlier, it's a, it's a culmination of everything you, you've done. Do you feel that it's also the best thing that you've done? Oh, I always think it's the best thing. Ever. You think the last thing is always the best <laughs> yes. thing? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> is there anything you, you know? Is there anything you look back on that you know maybe wasn't quite up to that standard? That maybe maybe wasn't your best thing? Oh, there were plays that didn't quite work. Yeah. But, but um, at the time we did them, I loved them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and a lot of my plays were not successful in terms of critics, but I I think they were. Uh, still wonderful pieces of work that I admire, you know, and very happy I did. Uh, and um, uh, I mean, uh, Little Birders, which is still around, yeah. was a Broadway flop mm. when it opened, and uh, they tried to bury it. Came yeah. back and kept coming back. Yeah. And um, uh, and Hollywood hated Carnal Knowledge and 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 and, and, and tried to forget it for years <laughs> after. So the year Carnal Knowledge came out. Uh, it was the Academy Motion Picture Academy ignored it completely, except for nominating Anne Margaret, who was one of their own. You know, but uh, and yet that movie still has resonance. Well, the movies that won awards that year, nobody can remember. Yeah, I the one the one that has has always had a special place in my heart, and a lot of this has to do with my my age. But the first thing of yours I was ever exposed to was Popeye. Yes. Yeah. Do, do you do you do you have a fond memory of, of working on that as well? No, because <laughs> Robert Altman, who was a friend, was also very difficult to work. Yeah. With. And um, uh, I think the, I think there's some some wonderful stuff in the film, but I did that as an homage to E.C. Seagar, and it got a little lost in the re- in the telling. Yeah. Although Seagar's daughter loved the movie. Yeah. She called me up to tell me that. Uh, she thought it honored her father, and I, I started to cry because that's what I wanted to do. Have it, it seems like mo- most of your work, and certainly the sort of the more prominent things, are, are pieces that you've worked on on your own. You know, these obviously a, a screenplay turns into a play. Other people are working on it, but you're sitting alone. You're working on it. This this new book, you, you uh, the, the the graphic novel trilogy you worked on yourself, but. Uh, do you enjoy the, the the collaboration, whether it you know be Popeye or or the illustration work you did on Fam Tollbooth? Well, it all depends who you're working with, yeah. uh, and uh, the best uh, uh, creative partnership I had uh, either in theater or film was with Mike Nichols because mm. we had similar takes on things, yeah. and um, and uh, and we fed each other. I mean, yeah. That, that he gave to me. I gave back to him. I learned an awful lot from him about how to make. I mean, the the, the 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 reason I can do these graphic novels now successfully is because what I learned from Nichols in transferring the script of Cardinal Knowledge, which was originally a play, uh, to film form, hmm. and uh, he basically gave me, in the course of our work together, a series of tutorials and how to take dialogue off, off, off a stage and turn it into actable scenes and movable scenes and, you know, and, and, and uh, it was a lesson and new lessons I learned every day and um, I don't think I could be doing this stuff now except for what I got from Mike yeah, when, when I look at Mike Nichols and, and you I think one of the things that you share is this that you, you both made these seamless transitions from you know he the the uh, the the work he did with uh, Elaine May is a, is a very different career than he the one he has now and and, and like you he's completely he completely reinvented well, well, it himself. It was different, but it wasn't. Mm. It's all um, he once said to me. It's all behavior, hmm. and it's all reaction, and that was wonderful to you know, to have him. Suddenly, I saw exactly what he meant and what he was doing. How people behave with each other. Hmm. 
which means how they react physically with each other so you can see it, or how they re- will not give anything away so you can see that too. Yeah. You know, and all of that tells you something that the words don't necessarily convey. Hmm. It adds to the words, and that's what I mean by words and pictures. And, and you're, you're talking about a, almost a completely different way of looking at the world around you, of, of how you observe other people in normal life outside of the creation of art. Well, but it's also how you... Uh, um, that's not quite true. You grow up in a family, mm-hmm. and from the time you're a little kid, you know and begin to acknowledge to yourself the difference between what people say to you in your family, your parents or your siblings, yeah. and what they mean. And the difference between, uh, yes, that means yes, and yes, that means no, or yes, mm. that means maybe. Uh, you begin to decode for yourself uh, different modes of behavior and, and, and different ways of uh, directing you. Uh, so that uh, you can be, you can socialize yourself into this world. If not, you couldn't socialize. If um, if everything, uh, uh, if every way you behave was simply to take what people said yeah. as gospel, sure. you wouldn't get very far. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know. So you know when to talk. You know when to mm-hmm. react. You know when to shut up. That's all part of the socializing process. Uh, Otherwise, you get fired from every job within yeah. a day or two. You know that that people don't mean what they say. Sure. I mean that that my entire comic strip at the Voice was all about the misuse of language, the abuse of language. It had more to do with the the words people speak mm. than than drawings, uh, and uh, and how we do that in families, and how we do that in politics, and how we do that in workplaces, and and everywhere in life. In sex. Uh, uh, I love you, meaning go away from me. <laughs> Stop bothering me. Uh, it's uh, uh, that learning to decipher yeah. the codes that we all use on each other. Yeah. And at the same time, keep the code secret from everybody else. Uh, that's the fun of this, to see that, that, that exposing the code. Uh, but uh, he 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 helped make you a little more conscious of that, you know, of, of yes. going out and, yes. and seeing and, these things I mean, in the world. And and and, and, and it was my <coughs> my exposing these codes is what got me noticed in the first place and made me <coughs> popular and to stay popular over the years. I found whether it's in the family, in sex, in politics, a way of decoding the conversation, hmm. the cover story, and exposing the cover story. And um, and people would look at it and say, Jesus Christ, that's right. That's the way I think, but I never really expressed it. And you build up uh, this uh, fan base because people look to you to to express what they were thinking, and they weren't quite sure that that's what they thought. Hmm. Is there an element of that in in Kill My Mother? I don't know. I think less so because I was out to do something else and kill yeah. my mother. Yeah. But there, in the second book, Cousin Joseph, there's more of an element in that. In the third book, uh, it's while it will be still in the thriller category, it's uh, more pure Pfeiffer of you know me doing subversive stuff because that's the way it turns out. Yeah. You're still having fun. Ah. <laughs> it's the best. There you go. That was a great Jules Pfeiffer. Uh, I don't really know what uh, what is possibly left to say about Jules Pfeiffer, but um, a few weeks ago uh, when I, I, I did the conversation with, with Kinky Friedman, I was uh, sitting around a table with a you know a bunch of uh, a bunch of friends of his and, and some press people, and they were asking me to uh, explain my podcast and and you know other people that that I had had on the show, and and I was kind of. Um, I was racking my brain a little bit to try to come up with a few people that I think they, they might have heard of. You know, I mentioned uh, Donald Rosamo. Um, I mentioned uh, Eric Gozian, who's going to be on an episode in the very near future. Uh, and, you know, but like the vast majority of people who've been on lately have been uh, a, lot of, a lot of cartooning folk. And, and, you know, I said, 
oh, have you, are you familiar with Jules Pfeiffer? And there was just sort of a pause and everybody was, and everybody responded, you know, of, of course we're familiar with Jules Pfeiffer. You know, he's been, obviously he's been a, a New York City institution for, for, for decades now. You know, he did, um, a strip for the Village Voice for uh, about uh, about forty years. He's been uh, he's been a playwriter. He wrote little mur- uh, little uh, murders, which was turned into a film. Carnal Knowledge, uh, you know, has, has done uh, all sorts of uh, screenplays. He he did uh, he did Popeye with with Robert Altman. Um, he, he he won the uh, the Academy Award for uh, a cartoon that he did with uh, an anime short he did with Gene Deitch. He's he's won the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, it, you know, it was a it was a Silly question, but I guess you, you never really assume that uh, that that's you know mixed mixed company necessarily uh, understand all the references you're putting out there. But he's, I mean, it's it's just it, it's astounding when you take a moment and look back at his career, look look at all the things he's done. He's you know about as close to uh, you know Renaissance man as as I think exists in this day and age. Um, he. You know, I, I, uh, I talked about this a little bit during during the interview, but um, I was have been familiar with his stuff for longer than I've had any idea who Jules Pfeiffer is. Um, you know, there uh, and and the first time uh, the first time that I interviewed him, I never I, I never never do this, but the first time that I interviewed him, I had a copy of the Phantom Toll Booth with me and, and had him sign it for me because you know. It's, how how often I, I I didn't know how often I was uh, if I'd ever actually encounter him again. Of course, you know I've interviewed him a few, a few times since then. I spoke to him for uh, for Publishers Weekly a couple months ago when uh, when Kill My Mother, his first ever graphic novel, came out, and then uh, this was at uh, at Baltimore Comic Con. We sat down in the lobby of his hotel to to discuss that book and just to talk about his career. It was really uh, it was an it was a nice time for reflection because he was there not only for that book but he was also there to accept a few harvey awards one on behalf of it himself and one on behalf of uh, of of will eisner who was also uh, being inducted and he of course worked with will eisner early on in uh, in his career started apprenticing with him when he was about 16 and you know that uh, kind of set in motion one of the most amazing and legendary cartooning careers of all time. So, um, so, so glad we had the opportunity to do that. Um, thanks to uh, the folks at Abrams for helping set that up. Thanks to Karen Green from Columbia for uh, getting the ball rolling on that. Uh, thanks to uh, Brian for editing the show together. Thanks to everybody at the Boing Boing Podcast Network. If you like this show, many other fine shows, you can check out over at boingboing.net or over at iTunes. And while you're over at iTunes, take the, uh, take the opportunity to, to rate the show if you liked what you heard. If you've got any feedback, it's riwellcast at gmail.com. Uh, the Tumblr is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L-related information. That is R-I-Y-L-Cast.tumblr.com. Uh, We've got a, a Facebook. You can like us over there. Uh, in the meantime, however, we'll be back uh, just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 